In 1918, there was a huge parade in Philadelphia. A kind of political rally, really. It was September 28th, a clear fall Saturday. Warplanes and weapons and marching bands floated their way down Broad Street, one of Philadelphia's main arteries. American flags swayed with the wind. It was called the Liberty Loan Parade. There were actually a ton of Liberty Loan Parades held across the country at the same time. But this one in Philadelphia was one of the biggest. The city organized the parade to drum up morale and, more importantly, money for World War I. It was an idea devised by President Woodrow Wilson's administration. Every major U.S. city and region was expected to sell a certain number of Liberty Bonds issued by the Treasury Department. Citizens would buy these bonds from their personal savings, the government would get an influx of money for the war effort, and then it would promise to pay Americans back. The Wilson administration expected the city of Philadelphia to raise $500 million in Liberty bond sales in the fall of 1918. Thus, the big parade. Government ads and flyers urged Philadelphians to come out that fall Saturday. And they did. 200,000 people crowded the streets. They watched the military floats go by and they chanted songs. And in the midst of it all, they were approached to buy war bonds. It was a masterclass in the psychology of patriotism. Only three days later, though, an entirely different scene blanketed Philadelphia. Gone was the intoxicating, positive energy of the parade. In its place was pandemic. Church bells tolled throughout the city as people started dying. Bodies began to literally pile up in the streets, streets that just days before had burst with life and song. A virus had torn through the parade crowd like shrapnel. It was a strain of influenza unique in how quickly it could incubate and how deadly it could be, even in young, healthy adults. The average age of those who died from it was 28 years old. It caused fevers, vomiting, then led to pneumonia, organ failure, and death. In some cases, people died within 24 hours. And the thing was, the U.S. government had known about it. Had known that it was brewing, had known that mass gatherings like the parade would feed its spread. But selling the war, selling liberty itself, had been more important than warning people of the risks. Ultimately, 675,000 Americans would die from influenza. Yet not once, not once, did President Wilson ever say a single word about the virus, about its death toll, even about its 
very existence. Why? I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is a special episode of Presidential. I'll resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A date which will live in infamy. had President Woodrow Wilson handled the 1918 flu pandemic? I got curious about that question soon after coronavirus began tearing through the United States. The 1918 influenza was the deadliest pandemic in modern history. It arrived around the same time World War I was ending, and the virus killed roughly 50 million people worldwide. That's more than three times the number of deaths from World War I itself. But the thing was, even though I did a whole presidential episode on Wilson, his leadership in the face of that pandemic hadn't come up at all. Why was that? I started looking back through notes, doing some more research, and it turns out I hadn't overlooked something back then. It's that... There really was no story about Wilson navigating the pandemic. He took no action to combat the virus as president. But in searching for what his leadership would have been, I actually was led down the path to a different story that was buried underneath. One that helped explain the absence of his leadership. It's a story about the White House information control, and fake news. You learn a lot about American history through a uh, study in epidemics. This is Vanessa Northington Gamble. She's the university professor of medical humanities at George Washington University. You find out about presidential leadership. Uh, You learn how disease is written into our, our public policy. You also find out a lot about race and ethnicity. Pandemics give us a lens into our country at its most vulnerable. They show us whether, with the armor pulled off, America is indeed living up to its constitutional ideals, whether that's an ideal like equality or the First Amendment. To see this, you can go all the way back to the very beginning of our country. In 1793, 
only two years into George Washington's first term as president, yellow fever broke out in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was then the temporary capital. And this epidemic comes and almost wipes out the city. As president during this time, George Washington's response was to flee. He returned to his home in Mount Vernon, Virginia. Thomas Jefferson retreated to his Virginia home as well. Alexander Hamilton got sick and then also escaped from the city. So who took care of all the sick people? Who actually stepped in to handle the crisis, if not the president and the administration? Black people were taking care of the sick. They were burying the dead. It was believed that Black people did not get yellow fever. And so since there was this belief that Black people did not get yellow fever, many Black people stayed behind to take care of white Philadelphians. Of course, everyone could get yellow fever. It was carried by mosquitoes. But that wasn't known at the time. Two of the people coordinating the aid efforts were prominent Black church leaders, Richard Allen and Absalon Jones. They urged their parishioners to help. And one of the things why Absalon Jones and Richard Allen pushed the Black community to care for their white brethren was they wanted to get their rights as citizens, and that did not happen. In the fall of 1793, 10% of Philadelphia's population ended up dying from the virus. Many of those were Black nurses and people who were too poor to flee the city. The outbreak ended only because the onset of colder weather killed off mosquitoes. By mid-November, the plague was considered officially over, but it was December before Washington felt comfortable enough to move back to the president's house in Philadelphia. In the 125 years or so between George Washington and Woodrow Wilson, there were other disease outbreaks like tuberculosis and polio, and most of these were also met with little response from the White House. No president had really considered virus control or even public health more broadly as a part of his job. Now, this was largely a function of the way the presidency was designed from the outset. There was nothing in the Constitution that said a president had to be responsible for the health of the population. In fact, there's really not much in the Constitution about the role beyond that the president can appoint positions and negotiate treaties and make occasional recommendations to Congress. So throughout much of the 1800s, the presidency was a relatively weak role. But the 1918 influenza burst into American life on such a disastrously different scale that it seemed impossible for Wilson to ignore it. Plus, in many ways, Wilson's presidency was on a different scale, too. From the moment he entered the White House, Wilson was intent on expanding the reach of executive power. 
and that intent further deepened when the United States entered World War I during Wilson's second term in the spring of 1917. It came at last. War. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. This was about a year and a half before the military parade in Philadelphia became a super spreader for influenza. But already, you could see a president who was solidifying his authority and control as the U.S. joined the war effort. Wilson controlled information to a degree never before seen in the American presidency. Within a week of entering the war, Wilson approved the creation of something called the Committee on Public Information. To put it bluntly, this was a propaganda arm of the American government. It did things like create press releases and stories that put a positive spin on the war that were then planted in newspapers. It created war posters, like the iconic one I'm sure you've seen of Uncle Sam, his finger in the face of the person looking at the poster, and the words, I want you for the U.S. Army. This arm of the government also orchestrated public campaigns to buy Liberty Bonds, like the parade in Philadelphia. George Creel ran the committee. He once described his goal as turning the American public into, quote, a white-hot mass. He wanted them fired up about the war with, again, quote, fraternity, devotion, courage, and deathless determination. Psychological research was a relatively new field at the time, and the Committee on Public Information marked one of the earliest efforts to twist psychology's insights toward specific ends. Committee staffers studied concepts like herd instinct and psychological warfare, and then they constructed information campaigns that were designed specifically to inspire or scare or guilt trip or peer pressure the American public. The latest news from the front is cheering. It is a fight to the finish, and it is up to us. It worked. Let's do our share. The committee's propaganda efforts were so effective that citizens, newspapers, businesses would take it upon themselves to create their own patriotic messaging. The test of good citizenship is loyalty to country, our only passport to be our own blessed flag flying. The committee and its techniques would eventually give birth to the advertising and the public relations industries that would transform 20th century America. But in the meantime, perhaps the most illuminating quote about the Committee on Public Information and the tactics it was using comes from Arthur Bullard, the man who convinced Wilson to create the committee in the first place. And he explained it this way, quote, 
Truth and falsehood are arbitrary terms. He went on, The force of an idea lies in its inspirational value. It matters very little if it is true or false. Everything was focused on the war with an intensity unlike any other period in American history in an effort to control thought unlike any other period in American history, including the McCarthy scare. This is John Barry, a historian and author of The Great Influenza. Uh, The Justice Department created the American Protective League, which had no legal basis whatsoever, but they gave them badges. Uh, And they went out and 200,000 Americans spied on their fellow citizens. The American Protective League was technically a private vigilante organization, but it operated under the explicit approval of the Justice Department and the Attorney General. These were average citizens who acted as though they were undercover government agents. They would surveil and even round up people who they suspected had dodged the draft or were opposed to the war or really in any way seemed un-American. In addition to creating this Citizens Policing Other Citizens program, there were also new laws passed that made it easier for the government to punish people who said things it didn't want said. Woodrow Wilson signed the Espionage Act into law in 1917, shortly after U.S. entry into the war. Among other things, it empowered the Postmaster General to confiscate mail and to refuse to deliver it if it criticized the administration in any way. In 1918, a bit later, Wilson signed into law the Sedition Act, which made it unlawful to publish anything critical of the government. You know, and he, he had an attorney general who demanded the Librarian of Congress report names of people who asked for certain books. He said the government needed to monitor, quote, the individual casual or impulsive disloyal utterances. But a lot of the time, legal action wasn't even needed. Society responded to this combination of threats and patriotic propaganda by self-censoring and self-policing. Wilson had created an administration and, by extension, an American society that largely put free speech and truth below victory. This brings us back up to the fall of 1918. By the time of that Liberty Loan Parade in Philadelphia, a catastrophic wave of influenza was gathering. There had been a relatively mild first wave in the spring, which Wilson had said and done nothing about, but it now returned with exponentially more frightening force. You might think that based on Wilson's very active involvement in all these other aspects of American policy, that he would have risen to meet and squash this impending crisis of the pandemic in the fall. 
But instead, the opposite happened. The fall surge of the virus coincided with the final stage of World War I. Peace and victory looked to be just within Wilson's reach and nothing else could take his focus. It was a crusade for him. And anything that distracted from that crusade, he simply pushed aside. So when you look at that context, it's not really surprising that they tried to minimize the outbreak. In the United States, the pandemic first really exploded in the fall in military training camps. For several reasons, this actually should have made it somewhat easier to contain. The federal government had strong and clear control over these military bases. Plus, many of the country's best scientists at the time held military positions. They were seeing and tracking the virus's deadly effects from the very beginning. They watched as influenza took over Camp Devons, near Boston, and then made its way down the eastern seaboard to the Newport Naval Base, the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Thousands of U.S. military personnel right here at home were falling sick in these training camps and then dying. One of the scientists who realized the catastrophe that was brewing and who tried to sound the alarm about it was William Crawford Gorgas. He was the Army's Surgeon General. Gorgas had actually successfully controlled the spread of yellow fever during the building of the Panama Canal. And he was now aware and very concerned about this even more rapid and horrific spread he was seeing of the influenza virus. He and some of the other scientists pressed Wilson to help contain it, in part, what they suggested was that he shift military plans. They, you know, tried to stop uh, the shipment of troops to Europe in the fall of 1918 because, uh, you know, the close quarters on a ship were, you know, they were almost floating coffins. But Wilson refused to stop the deployments. So... Gorgas and others suggested an alternative. What if he at least reshuffled the deployments so that only those troops who had already been exposed to the virus and had built up an immunity would get on these confined ships to Europe? And Wilson wouldn't even make that adjustment. Gorgas and other scientists were unsuccessful in persuading the administration to approve any changes that could curb the spread of the flu, because it might affect the war effort. The president could be unflinching about that. Here's a clip from a radio show called Biographies in Sound. It came out years after Wilson died, but they interviewed people who knew him and who were willing to share some insights into his leadership and his personality. 
Editor James Kearney of the Trenton, New Jersey Times newspapers, whose father helped Wilson up the political ladder, adds... He could be totally charming, absolutely gregarious. He was a witty storyteller. And at the same time, he could turn around and be a, a man of un, a violent temper, almost ungovernable. John Barry told me something similar. You know, you were for him or against him. He wasn't susceptible to flattery. He was too smart for that. But if you criticized him, he was done with you. That was it. It was his way or the highway. Uh, he would cut people off for, you know, relatively trivial disagreements. Uh, so he didn't exactly have an open mind. I asked John if it was possible that Wilson was just so focused on the war that he genuinely wasn't processing the severity of the pandemic. I, I don't think it was possible for him not to process the seriousness of the disease. It was too obvious and it was too much everywhere. The pandemic soon spread from places like the Navy Yard in Philadelphia to the broader population. In part, this was due to mass gatherings that mixed military personnel and civilians, like at war rally events, such as the Liberty Loan Parade. Army Surgeon General William Gorgas hit his retirement age around the same time, in the fall of 1918. He could see the virus gathering strength, and he certainly saw his recommendations going unheeded. So... With what appears to be some nudging, he retired from his post. The army could easily have kept him on and just waved it, but they wanted to get rid of him. He was too critical of them, too much concerned with the health of the troops. And so he was forced out a couple of months before the end of the war. The Liberty Loan Parade took place on September 28th. Gorgas retired on October 3rd. This was right when the pandemic really began to skyrocket. The failure to contain the flu on the military bases meant that the number of U.S. deaths jumped from 12,000 in September, mostly military, to 195,000 in the month of October alone. Even as the death count soared in October, the Wilson administration continued to send sick troops into combat, which only worsened the spread of the virus. They sent more and more nurses into combat too, leaving hospitals at home understaffed and overflowing with dying citizens. And they pushed American factories, building munitions for the war, to keep packing their floors to full capacity with workers. It was as if the pandemic didn't exist to the president. All that mattered was the push toward victory in November. Wilson never made a public statement about it. Not once. And many federal and local government leaders followed Wilson's lead. 
they remained alarmingly quiet about the virus, and when they did occasionally speak, they often downplayed its severity. Take, for example, Rupert Blue. Blue was the U.S. Surgeon General. Especially at this time, when there was no Centers for Disease Control, no National Institutes of Health, Blue was the primary person in the government who was responsible for communicating with the public on health issues. And Rupert Blue really was not responsive. This is Vanessa Northington Gamble again. He did send out in September of 1918 a pamphlet that was uh, sent uh, primarily to newspapers saying that there's this new flu. He says it's not going to be much worse than the You know, the other flu is called the Spanish flu, drink fluids, quarantine if necessary. You know, so there was not a robust, you know, of a federal effort. The public health director in Philadelphia made similar statements, downplaying and brushing aside the risks. Not only did this misinformation contribute to more deaths, but it started to undermine Americans' faith more broadly in their democracy. There was fake news, but it was coming from the government. These reassurances, which were so obviously false, uh, their only impact was meant that people didn't believe anything they were being told, which of course meant they were on their own, which of course, you know, when when that happens, when... In, Unlike most disasters, when people come together and help each other and the best of humanity shows up, uh, people couldn't trust anybody, they couldn't trust anything. You know, there, was, there were certainly plenty of cases of heroism, but at the same time, society itself began to fray in places where, where things were the worst. City streets went unpoliced. As officers caught the virus, communications fell apart as telephone operators were too sick to connect calls. In Philadelphia, the death toll climbed so high, so fast, that the city had to dig mass graves. Schools and businesses eventually closed, but only after it was too late to make much difference. And even then... As Philadelphians were being battered by all this tragedy and death around them, the information that they were getting spun a totally different story. Uh, You know, one of the newspapers remarked on the closing of everything and said, quote, this is not a public health measure. You have no cause for alarm, unquote. Of course, totally ridiculous comment. But the Committee on Public Information, the Sedition Act, you know, all these efforts that were set in motion a year earlier by the Wilson administration to ensure support for the war effort, they were all now spilling over into misinformation about the pandemic. Many news outlets either softened their coverage of the virus Or at the very least, they avoided investigating and criticizing the government's role in the flu's deadly spread. Almost all of them were complicit. And they only printed good news. Some newspapers stopped printing the names of the dead. 
they would take no notice of the pandemic. There were, of course, some exceptions. Yeah, when one Wisconsin paper early in the pandemic started to truthfully report on what was happening in that community, uh, the Army started prosecuting the editor and publisher under the Sedition Act. There was also a provocative piece published by the Chicago Defender, which was one of the most influential African-American-run papers in the country. The Chicago Defenders uh, criticized the actions of the police and that a breeding ground for influenza was the jails in Cook County. It's worth pointing out that there were also a few cities around the country that had more forthright and proactive local officials. In San Francisco, for example, leaders there were clear with the public about the risks of the virus, and they went so far as to fine citizens in the city who were caught not wearing a mask. As a result, they successfully managed to curb the death toll there. But most places were more like Philadelphia. They responded too late, and even then, too little. On November 11th, 1918, the fighting came to an end. And over the whole world rose a pian and clamor of hysterical joy at the end of the horrible struggle. Germany signed an armistice with the Allies, even though the details of their peace agreement would still not be fully worked out until the spring. But though the fighting abroad had ended, Wilson's attention didn't turn back to the crisis at home that was still unfolding. Through the remainder of the fall and then into 1919, the virus continued to flare up and down and up again, but Wilson remained silent. Wilson went to Paris in the spring of 1919 to work out the terms of the peace treaty. By then, so much of the world had been ravaged by both war and influenza. The virus had spread from country to country, fueled by the fighting, and it was still lingering on. While he was in Paris, Wilson caught the flu himself. He was sidelined for a portion of the peace talks, laid out in bed with fever and hallucinations, but the public, of course, was never to know that. On June 23, 1919, the Evening Public Ledger, a Philadelphia newspaper, ran the front page headline, in all caps, Germany agrees to sign peace pact. The war was officially, officially over. A week later, the Committee on Public Information was disestablished by Congress. And by August, Wilson himself officially abolished the committee by executive order. But by then, the pandemic had effectively come to its end, too. And the damage had been done. The pandemic ended not because there was a vaccine, but because the virus had spread so much 
that enough people either died of it or developed immunity. It's estimated that between 1918 and 1919, at least one-third of the entire world's population had contracted influenza. In the United States, at least 675,000 people died of the virus. That's more than 10 times the number of Americans who died fighting World War I. You know, the, it's been called the lost generation, uh, the, the young adults in the 20s. You know, most of that's probably from the war, the utter waste of millions of young lives for absolutely no purpose. Uh, but, you know, some of it is probably from the pandemic, which also wasted young lives for no purpose. Uh, you know, there was just a general sense of disillusionment. And that disillusionment stuck with the country for years to come. The pandemic left in its wake a deep loneliness and a vulnerability and a sense of unhingement. In 1933, Christopher Isherwood writes Berlin stories from which uh, the movie Cabaret came. And he compares the entry of Nazis into Berlin to influenza. He said you could feel it like the influenza in the bones. Fifteen years later, there is uh, still this lingering sense of the horror and the deep pain that that disease caused. So I it probably contributed to that sense of wildness in the 20s and, and pointlessness. And I think the main lesson from 1918 is you tell the truth. Many thanks to this week's guests, Vanessa Northington-Gamble, University Professor of Medical Humanities at George Washington University, and John Barry, author of The Great Influenza. Thanks also to producer Bishop Sand for the amazing editing and sound design work on this episode, to director of audio Jess Stahl, and to art director Rachel Orr. Archival tape in this episode comes from Critical Past and the Library of Congress. 
I'm Lillian Cunningham. You can find me on Twitter at Lily underscore Cunningham or on Instagram at Lillian.Cunningham. Finally, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>